Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Where there are setbacks, there are always opportunities. I want you to remember that. Where there are setbacks, there are always opportunities. And the truth is there are a lot of people who are finding themselves in tight spots these days because they may no longer have a job. But hopefully in the next couple of months and almost definitely in the next year, there are going to be businesses who are looking to do some major hires. If you are a leader of a team or an organization, this episode is going to give you some insight on how to be thinking about either updating or entirely revamping your recruiting approach to make sure that you're able to get the best of the best. And our guest today is going to help you do that. Now, before we get started with today's interview, there are two podcast episodes that I want to direct you toward that might give you some encouragement as you're working with what is probably a new work schedule for you. The first one actually comes from Pete McGraw, who we had on the show two episodes ago talking about his book, Stick to Business. He has two podcasts, including one called I'm Not Joking, which we talked about then in his bio, but he has another one called Solo, The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life, and his most recent episode, episode 19, is titled Write Your Way Out, and it talks about the value and benefits of creating content more than you consume it, which is something that I think we really need to be thinking about now when it's so easy for us to be scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or just surfing the web, simply consuming content and not making the most of our time. The second one is an episode from earlier this year on this podcast with Mark Hodgson called Why You Need to Be a Content Creator, and that's episode 55, and you can find that at lifeasleadership.com slash 055. It fits right into this idea of creating content rather than just consuming it. One of the ways that you can influence the people around you as a leader is beginning to share your ideas with the world and allowing your ideas and your example to change the way that they think and live. Our guest today is the CEO of ECA Partners, where he leads the private equity and venture capital practice that supports high-growth companies with filling C-level positions. His primary focus is on CEO, COO, President, CFO, and Chief Strategy Officer roles. He regularly contributes to Harvard Business Review and Forbes and has just released a new book, Evidence-Based Recruiting, How to Build a Company of star performers through systematic and repeatable hiring practices. Here is Atta Tarki. Atta, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I like to start off every interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for this? 100%. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Hire well, manage little. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? Kind, impactful, and a visionary. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? 
What could I have done better? What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? One book that I really enjoyed is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. That has really helped me in my thinking. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Ask people for feedback on what you could have done better in various scenarios. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Why not? I'm someone who's oftentimes trying to find a way to make things work as opposed to coming up with a reason why it's not going to work. And I guess that's what, what has made me an entrepreneur. When I was starting my business, I had tens of friends who came up with reasons why it would never work. And throughout starting this business and trying to scale it, I again have had a lot of folks who've come up with very good reasons why things that we're going to try to launch are never going to work. But I've tried to take in those considerations. I've tried to kind of like adjust my approach for those considerations. But I always try to see, okay, but is there a way where we can make things work? Now, Atto, we are here to talk today about your new book, Evidence-Based Recruiting, How to Build a Company of Star Performers Through Systematic and Repeatable Hiring Practices. I'd love for you to share a little bit about what you mean when you're talking about evidence-based. I think there's this understanding, of course, that you're using research and things like that. But what does the process look like by which you distill the best practices using an evidence-based approach? Evidence-based recruiting is a fact-based approach to recruiting. It takes the guesswork out of recruiting and leading organizations like Amazon and Google are already using it. And executives I talk to at those firms are telling me, Atta, every year our approaches in recruiting are becoming more and more evidence-based. And there are essentially two ways you could build up the fact base to come back to the second part of your question, how can you build up the fact base? And I compare it to being a doctor. If you're a doctor, you could either work at a research institution and you could be running your own research and collecting your own data and trying to expand that fact base. Or you could learn about the existing fact base that is out there from best practices from other organizations and adjust your approach and your recommendations to those things. Now, a vast majority of doctors are, of course, not working at a research university, nor do you want them to. If you go to the doctor and you say, I have back pain, you don't want the doctor to say, Joshua, that's great. Uh, we're going to set you up with this 20-year-long double-blinded study to find out what we should do about your back pain. <laughs> but what you do want the doctor to do, on the other hand, is also to kind of like consider the fact base ask you a few great clarifying questions about why you have back pain and then help you uh, make a good informed decision about what's the solution that's best for you. And uh, you absolutely don't want the doctor to just say, based on my gut feeling, this will be all over in two months or you should go do X, right? And so one of the questions that I have following up from that is that you mentioned clarifying questions and doctors have gone through a lot of training and they are not always asking the same questions and yet they have this this store of knowledge that that they can draw from to where they have uh, different different areas where they can draw these questions from and so one of the things i'm wondering is when it comes to you and your expertise are there clarifying questions that you tend to be asking people more than others whenever you're trying to get some clarity on a subject and figure out what they actually need in this process. 
That is a great question. One of the key things that I try to teach recruiters is how to ask clarifying questions. What I mean by that is a lot of people hiring managers, I've ob- when I've observed them on how they interview candidates, they have a list of questions sometimes in front of them. Sometimes that list of questions in, is in their mind. They'll ask a question and the candidate says something and sometimes they're not fully satisfied with the answer. And sometimes they don't really know what that answer means. But a lot of hiring managers afterwards, when you're doing the debrief, they'll say, well, the candidate said A, which could mean B, which in that case means C. And my training to them is, well, why didn't you ask clarifying questions to see if they actually meant C or not? Mm. And I train them on how to do that. When I ask them, why did you not ask the clarifying questions and probing questions? A lot of times it comes back to the fact that they were uncomfortable. It's something uncomfortable about that whole like social environment we're in, in doing a job interview. It's unnatural. We're used to going to cocktail parties and getting to know people over a very long period of time before we get to ask them personal questions. But in an interview setting, you want to get to deeper questions and deeper answers right away. And that makes people uncomfortable. So what you can do is you could start with a a softening statement. A softening statement is something like, I want to make sure I understood you correctly. I want to make sure that I'm not misrepresenting what you're saying. Or can we cover that again? And then you could ask two types of clarifying questions. One is the what question. So can you describe that piece to me one more time? Do you mind if we cover it one more time? Did you say X or Y? And the other one is the Y type of questions. So what led you to make that decision? Why do you feel so strongly about that piece? Help me understand that. That's very helpful. So you have a a softening statement that prepares you for a clarifying question. And oftentimes those are what or why. And Atta, I liked what you just said. Don't just leave something hanging. Don't leave an interview or really probably any conversation wondering what someone meant because you have the opportunity to ask that clarifying question. Now, you are the CEO of an organization that primarily focuses on hiring C-suite executives. And one thing that I'm wondering is, I know that your book, which is right here by my side right now, is chock full of information on how to recruit more effectively. What I'm wondering is when you are looking at the C-suite Are you looking for something different? Is your process different? Are the principles different than when you're trying to hire for other people within an organization? Obviously, people's skill sets are different. But when it comes to the recruiting, does the process look different depending on whether or not it's a C-suite executive or if it's someone else within an organization? Yes, it does. Generally, when you want to kind of like start recruiting for a position, the first question you want to ask yourself is, what does good look like in this role? If we fast forward a year, two years, five years, 10 years, what can this person do for us in order for us to say, okay, this person was a phenomenal hire. And based on that, you want to go back to, okay, what are the skills that are required in order for this person to achieve that, that goal and that outcome that we really are defining as good. And when you're recruiting for a C-suite position in today's economy, things are so fast moving and so fast changing that what you really need is a general, exceptionally strong problem-solving skills. Mm. The only thing you can be certain of is that tomorrow's problems are not going to be the same as today's problems. 
You might not know what those problems are, but when you're going to more junior positions, the analogy I use is that you're more recruiting for a power drill. And when you're going to C-suite, more and more you're recruiting for a Swiss army knife. So when it comes to hiring in general, I want to take a look at the title of your book to drive at least the next couple of questions. You, you talk about the importance of finding star performers, and that's something that everyone would like to have. Is it realistic to, using evidence-based recruiting, have an organization that's chock full of star performers? And, you know... Theoretically, if you can find an organization that's full of star performers and doesn't have anyone who's lagging or slowing down the, the rest of the organization, then that organization is set up for success. Is that something that's feasible using the types of things that you talk about in evidence-based recruiting? It is feasible, and we are already seeing it. Organizations like Google are using evidence-based recruiting to hire more and more star performers. Now, if you're saying, is it feasible to only have star performers and have no kind of like average performers, if you will? No. And it's really important for everyone to understand what good looks like and the limitations of that good. So I have a personal experience there that demonstrated that for me when I moved to the U.S. I grew up in Sweden, in the countryside of Sweden, and there we play something called team handball. It's not the game where you bounce it against the wall. It's more like a mixture of basketball and lacrosse, I would say. And in the position I played there, if I ever took a shot at goal, I would probably make it. So I would say like maybe 80 or 90% of my shots would go in. And when I moved to the U.S., my friends would take me out playing basketball. And then one of my friends pulled me aside one day and said, Atta, why do you get so upset when you miss a basket? I said, well, it's really bad. I missed the basket. It's like, no, look at the very best players out there. They're missing all the time. Mm. Unless you're willing to accept that, you're not going to take any shots even when you have a really good opportunity. And recruiting is more like basketball than team handball where you have to accept the fact that not every hire you hire is going to be a star performer. Not every shot you take is going to go become a slam dunk. And unless you're willing to accept that, and Google has accepted it with all their kind of like knowledge, and they are more like the research university institution that I was talking about than a 10-person organization trying to understand the external fact base. But even they have accepted the fact that there is only so much you can predict. But if you do follow that process you can significantly improve the number of star performers you hire. So the initial question, I'm assuming, or at least one of the guiding factors is what you brought up earlier, which is what does good look like? What are some other key considerations that can be broadly applied without respect to the specific job position that's open? You can follow a structured interview process. Uh, it's been shown that organizations that follow a structured interview process, on average, uh, make about 30% more accurate on the higher job performance predictions. And the best practice for structured job interviews is that you start with what does good look like and then understand what are the skills we want, uh, go to the profile we, we're recruiting for, and then you go to what are the methods we're going to use to evaluate those skills. Some of those methods are going to be interview questions. Some of them are going to be job knowledge tests, etc. Once you've done that, the most important step that a lot of people miss is to define again, what does good look like when we're evaluating those questions? So if I want to see if someone has grit, what is the best way for me to evaluate it? 
what can someone do to demonstrate they have good grit? What can someone do to demonstrate they have bad grit? And a lot of organizations don't take that last step. And they say, oh, well, I'll just kind of like interview them. And based on that, I'll do a qualitative assessment. And that's where a lot of people fall into the trap of following their gut instinct a little bit too much. And talking about gut instinct, one of the things about evidence-based recruiting is that you are relying on outside knowledge that has theoretically been tested significantly. And you wouldn't know this necessarily about me. I think a good bit of my audience would, but I'm working on my PhD in organizational leadership right now. And so I do value that that scientific research. Sometimes the research backs up things that we already would have assumed, but sometimes it surprises us. And I'd love to hear from you some of the things that people might think work, but in reality aren't nearly as effective as they assumed. One of the things that I think is very counterintuitive for folks is that a lot of organizations nowadays take recruiting seriously, which is a good thing. But as a result, they've increased the number of interviewers on their end that should interview each candidate. And I've worked with organizations that have had a dozen interviewers. I've worked with organizations that have had 20 plus interviewers. And the assumption there is more information is always better. But Google looking at um, this from a more empirical perspective and saying, well, let's see if more interviewers actually is better. And at the time, they were using 12 plus interviewers. They decided to cut back the number of interviewers to five interviewers because they felt that was the most effective number in order to make these on-the-job predictions. So more is not always better. There are times when you're destroying value by just adding more complexity to the process. So I would say be thoughtful about how much complexity you're adding and where the trade-offs are. Are there any other pitfalls when it comes to recruiting that people fall into when they aren't using an evidence-based approach? There are tons of pitfalls. One of them is not understanding how to evaluate the fact base and the evidence. And going back to this whole thing of trying to accumulate more and more information, people then assign more weight to things that are not as relevant for on-the-job performance predictions than they should. And a great example of that is a research study that the professor Jason Dana did at Yale, where we had a set of students try to predict the GPA of another set of students. And initially, he just gave them past semester's GPAs. And when they had that information, they were able to get the predictions right about 65% of the time. Then on top of letting them see the students' GPAs, he also let them interview the students and gather even more information. And when he did that, the predictions were only half as accurate as originally. And a lot of researchers were scratching their head and saying, well, how could this be? They, They still had access to the GPA and now they just had more information. So more information is always better, right? Wrong. Sometimes when you have more information, you're making decisions based on less predictive factors. An interview that could have happened is, well, last semester you were an A student. uh, Did you have a girlfriend last semester? No. Do you have a girlfriend this semester? Yes. Do you think that you're going to spend more time with your girlfriend rather than studying? Yes. Oh, well, I think this student is going to be distracted. Let's put him as a B student. And essentially all those qualitative factors were destroying value in terms of making more accurate decisions, not adding value. So when it comes to recruiting, 
I'm sure that you are able to put into practice these evidence-based approaches and probably even try new things as they come along. Is there anything in this field that is is new and cutting edge that people may not be aware of that is helpful when it comes to recruiting the right people? Are, are Google and other larger organizations like that leading the way when it comes to these trends? Or is there insight on an academic side of things that people could benefit from that they may not be privy to? Yeah, there are tons of things you can do as an organization, even if you don't have the size of Google and resources of Google. But I'd say in terms of kind of like uh, very hands-on advice I have for your, your audience, one, follow a structured approach to interviewing and know what good looks like to an answer. Two, remember what I just talked about, which is called the dilution effect. More information is not always better. Stop wasting your time boiling the ocean and be more targeted in your assessment approach to candidates. Three, in my experience, job knowledge tests are vital to making better interview predictions. And job knowledge tests are not only used or helpful when recruiting for executives, but they're also very helpful when recruiting for mid and lower level, more junior level positions, if you will. Um, So these are three of the concrete things that I, I can leave your audience with. When it comes to the work that you do, a lot of organizations who are on the high growth end of things are able to afford and they really even need as much help as possible to get the right people in their organizations. They have the the capital to afford services like your organization provides. Like you were saying earlier, though, when it comes to other people who may have smaller organizations, they can't necessarily afford that. This book, Evidence-Based Recruiting, essentially has all that they need to get started on developing a recruiting process that can get them where they want to go, right? That's right. Um, I've tried to summarize a lot of the points in evidence-based recruiting in my book. I would say one of the key points that I've also summarized there is helping leaders understand how much better recruiting decisions are worked to them. And there is a a section of the book that helps them kind of like make that calculation using some very few simple assumptions that every business leader should know about their own business. And understanding your own numbers is extremely important. And then seeing once you've done that calculation, are you willing to act upon those numbers to invest more or less in your hiring process? And if you're not willing to act on that, it means that you don't believe your own numbers. So go back and make more reasonable assumptions until you're willing to act upon them. And I would say that this uh, notion that you brought up that larger organizations have plenty of capital they can throw at this, but smaller ones don't. It is true for big companies like Apple. They have plenty of cash available at hand, but I would say there are plenty of smaller and mid-sized organizations that we work with that are making heavy investments in building up their their, uh, talent. And so one of the things that I think you tend to do a little bit better job. And actually, you'd probably be able to speak to this more than than I would because you've had more experience with larger organizations. But they tend to do a better job of at least beginning to develop systems for their organization. That's something that smaller organizations don't always do well, but I think everyone would be served either at an organizational level or at a personal level to have more systems in their lives. When it comes to the recruiting and hiring process, 
what type of systems are most important? I know you've already mentioned having some some testing and things like that. What would be the top things to ensure that you have a, a, a fair and consistent and systematic approach when it comes to recruiting? Yeah, so I would say starting with the structured approach to interviews and knowing how to grade each answer so that you're not just saying, okay, this person, I got a lot of positive vibes for them and they really want this job. They, they articulated really well why this job was a good fit for them. But knowing that this person said, I want this job because I believe in your company's mission. I would enjoy the day-to-day activities that comes with it. I would really get excited about the things that I don't know and I need to learn. Um, I, it fits really the career path that I want to take. And on a personal level, it's close to where I live. I would enjoy the commute. Um, the hours are great. So the more of those points they're saying, the better of a fit they are. And this has nothing to do with how friendly they were in the interview or if uh, they had a lot of positive energy when they said those things or not. So thinking about the content of what they were saying, that's one of the systems. The second system is then how you make decisions based on this. So once you put down all these ratings, you make a decision and say, okay, I'm going to rate one to 10, give a candidate an overall rating and higher, no higher decision. And summarize that kind of like a few bullet points on in writing before you do the group huddle with your colleagues. Another mistake a lot of organizations do is that they come out of the interview room and while they're kind of like letting the other person going into the interview room, just already before they do a thumbs up or they kind of like make a sad face indicating that this candidate is not a really good candidate and they've already influenced each other too much there. So hold your opinions to yourself as much as possible. If you need to tell your colleague, look, I didn't have a chance to probe on this specific topic. I didn't have a chance to see if they're okay with the comp range. You could say that, but try to not influence each other before everyone has had a chance to make up their own mind about the the candidate. And then you can do the group huddle. Well, Atta, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Now, before we finish up, I'd like to give you the opportunity to share with us some things that we may not have gotten to cover yet that you think are really important when it comes to evidence-based recruiting or to simply reiterate some of the key concepts from today's interview. Yeah, I would say um, taking a page out of the playbook from baseball, who kind of like really led the path when it comes to a lot of more data-driven hiring decisions. If anyone's watched the movie Moneyball, which I'm a big fan of, or read the book, you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, What they discovered is that they can make much better hiring decisions using this data-driven, fact-based approach to recruiting. The second thing they discovered is it's not just about quantitative decisions. The qualitative part matters, and it matters a lot. But what you want to do is to measure that qualitative piece, record it so that you can go back six months later, a year later, five years later and see how much it matters and how much it should play into your decision. And creating that internal feedback loop, if you're making over 20 hires internally as an organization, you should really be collecting that data so that you can create your own feedback loop so that you can go back a few years later and check if if you're actually testing for the right things and which of the things that you're testing for are the most predictive of on-the-job success. And then you could double down on those approaches and adjust the other things that are not really working for you. Well, Atta, thank you so much for your time today. I'd love for you to 
share with people where they can go to find out more about you and your work and, of course, your new book, Evidence-Based Recruiting. Thanks for having me. They can go to our website, which is eca-partners.com. If they click on About Us, they'll find my name. And if they click on my name, they'll find my uh, contact details. They can also Google uh, or go on Amazon and just search for evidence-based recruiting. And um, I should be the first hit that comes up there. All righty, Atta, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, thank you. So there you have it. I hope you are taking away some good insights on how to better handle recruiting for your organization in the future. And if you liked what you heard today, be sure to check out Atta's book, evidence-based recruiting so you can read more and gain some insight on how you can be hiring star performers for your organization. Now, for today's three key takeaways, the first one is to ask clarifying questions, which are usually what or why questions that you ask in order to gain better understanding when you're talking to someone. And this is extremely important for the interview process to really make sure you understand what people are saying. But honestly, this is something that you can bring to any conversation. Don't be okay with leaving ambiguity in a conversation. As much as possible and as much as it's helpful, be sure to ask those clarifying questions. For the second key takeaway, there's another question that I thought was really helpful, and that is, what does good look like in this role? This is a helpful question because it helps you to understand what you want those results to be after someone's been filling that role for a year or so. It gives you some idea of what that win looks like. And the final key takeaway is to have a structured interview process. This does include that what does good look like question, but it also includes defining the skills you want and also the methods you'll use to evaluate those skills while you are in the interview process. If you like the sound of these ideas, but you feel like you need some more help to really put them into action, Atta's book, Evidence-Based Recruiting, is going to give you those answers. So be sure to check that out. Now, at the beginning of next week, our first episode of the week, our guest is going to be sharing about sales, confidence, and communication and the importance of these three things in just about any position that you have in life. If you have a sales background, this is probably going to be validation for you. And if you don't have a sales background, this is probably going to be an episode that helps you to see the value of bringing that mindset into different areas of life. So whether or not you're a salesperson, you're probably going to find something valuable in this episode. I hope to see you then. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. 
When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, Business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If Business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading well.